Today we're going to look at 2 John and 3 John, and we're going to find that there's a really great overlap between them that's useful for us. Uh, again, just to introduce it, this is our um, hidden gems of the New Testament, such great stuff, these little books, and you have to count 2 and 3 John as the shortest books in the Bible. 2 John is 13 verses, 3 John is 14 verses, and they don't get shorter than this. So this is it, all right? This is like, if you're looking for the record books, this, these are the short ones. And um, they're beautiful. They're short, they're sweet, they're to the point, they're very powerful, and we'll see why. Uh, so these two books, and I just want to say, uh, just like I said, a few words of introduction about them. Remember last week that 1 John kind of looked like a letter and kind of didn't. It was maybe more like a commentary on the Gospel of John. It's an interesting book. It's worth a little more study there. These two are letters, okay? They have the traditional format of a letter. There's a greeting, at the, there's a salutation at the beginning, and then there's this greeting at the end. And there's people are named by name in this letter, so we'll see that these really were probably like, you know, there was just a little bit of parchment that John had. He had his pen, he even says, I don't want to spend too much time writing because I'm going to see you in person, but here's a quick letter. Quick in those days was, you know, several weeks on the open sea, depending on how far this letter had to travel, but yet it was delivered. And so these books, these letters were written to individual people, individual churches, and yet they became circulated among the churches and became valuable for the whole church. And we'll see more why. But just to get wrap our heads around what we're after this morning is that John is going to address one wrong teaching and one wrong practice, okay? That's, we'll just keep it simple. There's one wrong teaching that he'll address, and there's one wrong practice that he will address, and we'll get into what those are. Now, the, the wrong teaching was a very pernicious one. It was a very destructive one. It had sprung up in the church uh, Victoria alluded it to earlier. It's called docetism or docetism or docetism or however you want to pronounce it. It probably has very, there's a lot of choices there, but I think docetism maybe works for me. So I'll just say it that way. Put it in your mind any way you want. But in, it's, and so the correct doctrine that docetism is a mistake about is called the incarnation. All right? The incarnation is central to our understanding of who Jesus is. It's the center, really, of almost everything that has to do with the Christian faith. So we're going to have to examine the false doctrine in light of the correct doctrine of the incarnation. And there's not enough time in the entire world to do that because it's such a rich and beautiful topic. I'll do my best to get you out of here before about 2 p.m., okay? So cancel those lunch runs. No, I'm kidding. This is actually going to be a shorter one, so that's good. But let's go to our reading. So listen to anything, listen for anything that would be about a bad practice and a bad teaching, particularly anything about the incarnation. So first I'll read from 2 John, and then I'll read from 3 John. And it goes like this. 2 John begins like this. Verse 1, the elder, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. 
I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Now let's look at third John. One, uh, one verse longer than the, the other one, but I think actually about the same length. Okay, third John, verse one. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans, we ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace. To you, the friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I like these little letters. I, they're just, they're short, they're sweet. They have one or, some, one or two main elements in them. And... Uh, I think we can enjoy them for that reason alone, but there's a lot going on here that we really want to pay attention to. So I said there's one, as I said, there's one wrong practice and there's one wrong teaching that we want to pay attention to. So first of all, the wrong practice, and the wrong practice had to do with hospitality. I imagine you picked that up, right? It was about, there's actually two sides to this hospitality. One was 
you have to be hospitable to the people who come and bring you the truth. This is a good thing, to be hospitable to those. Also, there are other people, one of them is named by name, Diotrephes, who was practicing a lack of hospitality to those who did come with the truth. And so that was a real problem, that he was not welcoming people who had a different view than him into the church. Now, you could also say, though, that John is telling them, do not welcome people who come with the false teachings. And so he's kind of, it's a little double-sided there, but, I, but the, the main difference is that the truth is on his side. This is the important distinction. Now you may say, well, of course the truth is on his side because he's writing this. But we know the truth is on his side because it conforms with all the rest of Scripture. And the doctrine that these people are bringing, which you should show no hospitality to, is the false doctrine that we'll be getting into later. So really what John is saying is that at the core of it, our normal rules about hospitality have to be suspended because this teaching about the incarnation is so incredibly important. And so the hospitality was an important category then. It was important to welcome people who were traveling. It was important to welcome them into the church. Uh, but it was also important to have a barrier at the church for anyone who would come in and preach a gospel that was different than the gospel that had been received. And so that's an important thing. I want to say, by the way, just as an aside, last week, and it was interesting, last week in adult forum, somebody asked the question, does the church ever kick anybody out, right? Does the church ever kick anybody out for their behavior, for example? And uh, I, I, I realized I gave only a partial answer then because I had some more time to think of it. My, my partial answer then is, no, the church doesn't kick anybody out. We have maybe have behaviors that come up in the church, and we address those behaviors. And addressing that looks like either care, it looks like care. And care sometimes looks like, uh, it looks like discipline, but care and discipline kind of go hand in hand. You, you, you call attention to a behavior, but you also say, here's how we want to help you with that behavior. But that doesn't escalate to, to the church saying, now we're going to push you out of the fellowship. We, the church should be strong enough in itself that it says, no, these are the norms for our behavior and if your behavior continues to push against that, then we're just going to keep drawing attention to it and keep caring for you and loving you. But we're not going to scoot you out the door. But that's, so that was what I said, but I realize that's only half the answer because the scriptures do tell us that sometimes you do kick someone out of the church. But it's not for the sake of the church that you do it. It's not, for the, it's not like the church is so threatened by somebody that we have to kick them out. You do it for that person's own soul. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. If somebody continues to sin and has just fallen apart in that respect and won't listen to his brothers and sisters saying, hey, look, there's an issue here. They continue to sin blatantly in the fellowship and outside. Then Paul says that person has to be excluded from the church because it may be the last thing that wakes them up and brings them back to Jesus. So it actually is a form of care. So that's, that's the answer. Now, here, you might also say with verses like this, and you can look in the Apostle Paul, that the church also has to exclude not people, but teachings. Okay, and that's an important distinction, right? So uh, if, if I came back here next week and told us all that we should join the Mormon church, my sincere hope is that you would just march me right out the door and say, thank you for your service, but you're done here. Please do that. 
I mean, really, just please do that. That's the right thing to do. You have to exclude something like that, because otherwise the church isn't the church anymore. Okay, so uh, I keep thinking Peter, but I know it's John. John says, yes, you do exclude somebody for bringing a false doctrine. But I want you to look at verse 8, because here's the linkage together. Now look at verse 8 of 3 John, okay? It goes like this. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men. These are the brothers that came from Peter, uh, from John and taught the truth. We ought, therefore, to show hospitalities to such men so that we may work together for the truth. And here, these two things are being linked together. The hospitality on the one side and the proper doctrine on the other side, and they come together in this verse, verse 8. So when you show hospitality to people who have the correct doctrine, then you're also working together for the truth. So the hospitality pays a dividend in good doctrine, and that's good news. So now let's go to that wrong teaching, that the, the, wrong, doc, the, the, the wrong practice was a lack of hospitality uh, to the right people and the... Uh, extension of hospitality to the wrong people, you could say. The wrong teaching you can find in 2 John, verse 7. That's on page 1211, if you want to follow along. So look at 2 John, verse 7, and it goes like this. Many deceivers, these are people who are liars or have some other motive. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So strong language here, isn't it? But look at what their false doctrine is, their false teaching is. They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Okay, so the teaching is that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And this is a big problem. It's a big enough problem that John is telling people when somebody comes like that, the doors of the church are closed to them, which is rare, right? You don't want to close the doors of the church to anybody. But somebody coming saying that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, we have a problem. So as Victoria said, I love it, and uh, Annika, I didn't know she knew docetism. This is a smart kid. It's really great. So docetism, I'm going to read you a little bit from my theological dictionary. Not because I didn't know, but because I want to get it exactly right for you guys. Um, but it's a theological outlook in the early Christian period that maintained that Jesus did not take on a physical body and thus only appeared to live a bodily existence and to die on the cross. And it mentions the cross specifically, which is important. The term docetism comes from the Greek verb meaning do, uh, to seem or to appear, and that Greek word is dokeo, which is why I think you might want to call this docetism, but they replace the K with a C anyway. So docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear, and it's the false teaching that Jesus only seemed to be Christian, uh, to, to be human. He only seemed to be, or only appeared to be dying on the cross when actually he was maybe more like a phantasm or something like that, like a hologram or something where he, he, he didn't actually suffer, he didn't actually die, he didn't actually enter the world in the flesh. Docetism rejects the notion that Jesus Christ actually lived in a physical human body. Instead, docetism asserts that Jesus only appeared to take on a human body during his earthly life. 
the denial of Jesus' bodily existence likely emerged from a dualistic view common in the Hellenistic period that considered physical matter, including the human body, to be inferior to spiritual matter. So there was this worldview among the Greeks and Hellenistic theology of thought and philosophy that there's this spiritual aspect of who we are, which is a more elevated aspect of who we are. That's maybe your more true self. And underneath that is your physical self, which is just the shell. It's not your, really your true self. Well, then you can do whatever you want with your, your physical self, and it doesn't, doesn't really matter because up here on this high plane of spirituality and of the mind, then you can have this exalted life. And um, that was a powerful influence. And even people in the early church were like, well, maybe the Greeks are right. Maybe there's, you know, maybe it doesn't matter what happens with the body. And if God came to earth, he would never go around in something so shabby like a human body. That's pretty low. We would never do that. I mean, this is exactly the point, though, is that God does come into the world to be low so that he can meet low people like us. We're going to see about that. It's very interesting. So docetism emphasized the divinity of Jesus while denying the importance of his bodily life on earth. Okay, so it's important to counter this. We need to counter this teaching, and the way we do that is we understand what really the Bible teaches about the nature of Jesus. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is both fully human and fully God at the same time. And that's hard to understand, okay? It's hard to understand. And that also those two parts cannot be pulled apart from each other because if they were to, then Jesus would not be Jesus anymore. That's his identity is that he's both at the same time. If you try to pull them apart from each other, what you're left with is not two Jesuses. You're left with something that's not Jesus at all. Because his true nature is both together. That's, that's the logic of it, okay? So here's what we believe about Jesus, that he came in the flesh and that he died on the cross as his complete self, both man and God at the same time, which would necessarily mean, and this is challenging, that God died on the cross, which is hard. I had a hard time with that when I first had that taught to me. Well, no, no, no. That part, God can't die. Just the human part of Jesus died, and the God part of Jesus didn't feel any pain, and it was all okay. Well, then I'm trying to pull Jesus apart. Then he's not Jesus anymore. He came into this world as God and man together. He can't leave the world in a different way. So we believe that God died on the cross, as well as Human, the human man and God together, Jesus died on the cross. And that God came in the flesh and God died on the cross because all the immense sin of the world can be countered by the immense cost that this was to God himself. So that kind of makes sense, is that if God dies on the cross, then he's given up this immense thing. And it makes the resurrection all the more miraculous, too, because then God came back to life in the flesh. The resurrected Jesus is human, all right? He eats, you know. He breathes on people. They can feel his breath. He's not a ghost. He tells Thomas to touch him, and he does, and there it is, right? So Jesus comes in the flesh, but here's the other thing about the incarnation. We don't talk about this very much. There's a vulnerability in the incarnation, 
Jesus can bleed. Jesus can die. Jesus can feel. His emotions are acted upon by external events. This is what it means to be human, to live in our vulnerability, and Jesus embraces that 100%. So when he comes in the flesh, it allows him then to completely relate to us and engage with us. This is, I think, that probably the most important thing about the incarnation is that then he's on our level. So that's what allows him to say, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. He can only say that because of the incarnation, right? It's, it's what allows him to weep openly when he hears that Lazarus is dead, right? If you love your friend and your God, and even God knows that, you know, you may raise him again. So what's there to cry about? But Jesus is human too. And so a friend dying brings tears to his eyes. He goes and looks at Jerusalem and he weeps, weeps over it because he feels it so intensely, so humanly. It's why he asks for the cup to be taken away from him because He's afraid of pain. He's afraid of what's next. But it's also how you can say, not my will, but yours be done. It's a surrender. Humans can surrender. The flesh can surrender. Now, here's something you really want to pay attention to. Because he is in the flesh, it, his resurrection is in the flesh. And that gives us hope that our bodies will be raised again at the last that death is not the final outcome, and that we will have a new body and live in the physical presence of God someday. So the, do you see what I'm saying? Is The incarnation is not some obscure little corner of Christian theology where we go, oh, let's make sure we get that right, but it's not, eh, you know, it's, it's just kind of like, should we baptize infants or adults? Eh, we could fight over it, but we're not going to fight over it, yeah. No, we have to fight about the incarnation. We have to fight like everything depends on it because everything does depend on it. This is what John is saying. Don't let somebody who denies the incarnation into the doors of your church. Don't do it. The incarnation is everything to us. And like I said, I could go on for hours about why the incarnation is so important. Um, I won't. It's like five more sermons. It's great. I love this about our faith. It's so different. But it's so amazing, and there's more, because we have to live incarnationally in this world. We have to be engaged in the world the way Jesus was engaged with us. We have to weep over Silicon Valley. If you're not crying, you're not engaged in it. I, I'm saying this to myself. I haven't cried for Silicon Valley in the last 24 hours. I'm sorry. Well, maybe the last 24 weeks. I don't know. But it's sad. Are we moved by what's happening in this world? We're more moved when we're more engaged. Jesus calls us to live incarnationally in this world too. So, these teachers were saying that the incarnation didn't happen. He only appeared, dokeo, docetism. He only appeared to be human. So this is the challenge that the church had. The, what's interesting to me is that they had no problem back then, people believed in gods, right? This is a different time we're in now. But back then, people had no problem thinking that Jesus was a god. That's not hard. They had a problem understanding that he was fully God and fully human at the same time. And interesting, the one who denied it was called an antichrist in this reading. Like, oh, tell us how you really feel. Like, them's fighting words, John. They're the antichrist. Well, it's with a small a in your text, okay? So it's not the 
antichrist from Revelation, but it's somebody who's opposed to the work and teaching of the Messiah. That's what that means. Somebody who has set their opposition completely against what Jesus is trying to do by denying his flesh, by denying the incarnation. So I think that we are actually still fighting docetism today. It's still out there, but it's the flip side of it, okay? It's the flip side of docetism. Back then they thought Jesus was fully God but only appeared to be human. I think the opposite is true now. People think that Jesus was fully human, but they don't think he was God at all, right? Because we don't believe in gods anymore, but we certainly believe in people. And there's plenty of evidence that Jesus existed as a human being. No problem there. So the new docetism is that Jesus is all man, but not God at all. He only appears to be God to some people, okay? So this is what they would say. And I, I want us to admit how much we think this way, okay? This is what they would say about Jesus now. He's a good teacher. He's a wise sage who gives you the warm fuzzies. You know, he's nice. He's nice to kids. We love that. He has guidance and advice on how to live, how to be moral, right? He's kind of like the dear Abby, right? You know, right, dear Jesus, um, my husband doesn't like to take out the trash. How do I motivate him to take out the trash? And Jesus says, well, no. But this is the human view. This is the worldly. This is the new docetism, the new view of Jesus. Just kind of a pretty good guy, one of many good guys from way back then. So here's some examples of, of this is all scriptural, by the way. This is some examples of good advice from the scriptures, from Jesus. What does Jesus say? Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. That's really good advice. It's great advice. Nothing wrong with it. The fact that it comes from Jesus makes it even better, but it, that's all it is, really, is good advice. Count the cost of an endeavor before you start, right? Good advice. Build your house on a solid foundation. I know a hundred contractors that would tell me the same thing. I mean, that's not that amazing, but it's still good advice. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, we do build our, we try to build our house on a solid foundation. We kind of get it, right? So that's one view. He's just this good advice giver. Thank you. The other is that he's like a new Moses and he just brings more law or intensified law, okay? And that's all good too, okay? Good law, great. We need to know how to live. So you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and he intensifies the law about murder, about adultery. You know, he says, even if you think these things, you, you, you're breaking the commandment. Oh, that's hard. Oh, well, he really means it. He's serious. He doesn't countenance any skullduggery or funny business or anything like that. Jesus is a straight guy. He's just going to tell us how it really is. He says things like, treat each other as you would like to be treated. That's a good law. It's also good advice, right? It's like, ooh, they're together. Wow, he's really hitting the trifecta here. Jesus, thank you. Good advice, good law. I'll tell you something. This is when I was in seminary. I was asked to do a study on the Book of Romans at a Lutheran church in St. Paul. Actually, it was, yeah, no, Roseville, Minnesota, a suburb of St. Paul. And um, there was this couple that, kept coming, and they were nice people. We were reading Romans, we were talking about the law, what the law meant, and they, they, they kind of kept moving in this one direction where they, they said, 
yeah, but shouldn't the law be more serious? Shouldn't it be more, shouldn't we act more like we have to keep the law? And shouldn't, and actually behind it all I think was kind of this, was shouldn't we make sure everybody else is keeping the law? You know, all the law breaking out there, let's make sure those people know what the law is and know that they're breaking it. And, and um, we got to the point in Romans where it talks about, yes, the law is good, but the, keeping the law does not save you, you know? The law is good. It has its purpose. It drives us to Christ. But it doesn't make for salvation. And they, they kind of said, well, but you just have to keep the law. You just have to do this stuff. And, and I, all I said was, well, that's not what this text says. You know, we were, we were studying the Bible after all, right? We weren't talking about our opinions of things. It was just, this is what, no, the, the Bible doesn't say that. It says something different from that. And the next week, they didn't show up, you know? And, and actually, the day, that day that that happened, they left and they seemed mad, you know? And um, so I thought, is it something I said? <laughs> and that's hard because I, oh, somebody left a Bible study that I was teaching, and I'm a pleaser, you know? So I, I displeased some people. That hurts me, you know? I'm getting better at that. Thank, praise God. Was it something I said? No. Something the scripture said, I was faithful to point out that, no, the scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says the opposite of that. You are, I didn't say you are in error. Maybe that was the implication. The law is good and great and wonderful and it drives us to Christ. But Jesus didn't come just to give us new law. He didn't come just to give us good advice. Although there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. The thing about what I just said, the advice, the law, neither of those things are the gospel. Neither of those things, as good as they are, and I wouldn't discount them, any, if, if I was making fun of it, I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of any good advice or any law that Jesus brought, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is something else. You know, following advice, following the law, it gives you a good life if you can do it, but it doesn't give you the true life. There's a true life out there that comes from the gospel. And this is what the gospel is. You'll see how this is related. The gospel is this. When Jesus was outside the house of Zacchaeus, the sinner, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the gospel. Can you see how that's different from advice? That's something of a totally different nature. Or when Jesus says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's the gospel. Or this one. He is risen and has appeared to Simon. That's the gospel. The resurrection is the gospel. Or how about this? He said to them all, and this is related to a previous one, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's the gospel. The gospel is something else. And I'll tell you what, the temptation of the new docetism is that we want something that costs us nothing. Good advice costs me nothing because I can take it or leave it. It's completely optional, right? And laws are, are optional too, actually, because this book has no real civic authority over my life. I can take it or leave it. 
But when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. To be an incarnated person in this world and engaged in the world and vulnerable to the world so that the world might be saved, so that you can seek and save lost people. That's the gospel. The problem with new docetism is it lets me off the hook. Jesus is just now one in a chorus of many wonderful and enlightened teachers of the past. We can take and choose for ourselves like a spiritual smorgasbord, tailoring a spirituality that just feels good to us and expresses our true self. And we're enlightened people. We have this luxury of sampling everything and believing nothing. That's the temptation of the new docetism. He's, he's, not, he's just a man said a bunch of great things. I'll be sure to study those later when I have time when I'm not playing Pac-Man or whatever. I do actually play Pac-Man. I'm not kidding. <laughs> when I'm done mowing the lawn, maybe I'll listen to this wise sage, wise sage from 2,000 years ago. But if the incarnation is true, if God and man came in the flesh, my whole life gets reordered. I have to take up my cross and follow him. I can't just pick and choose of all these different things. No. The incarnation is how we need to live. One of the fathers of the church, his name was Ignatius, and he had a word for those people who were docetists. This is what he said. The unbelievers who maintain that Christ only seemed to suffer as they themselves only seem to be Christians. Ah, there's a burn, you know. An Ignatius burn. You say that Christ only seems to suffer? You only seem to be a believer. You are out. You are out of it. You need to come back. So we need to more than appear to be Christians. Docetism could apply to us. Look at those people. They only appear, dokeo, to be Christians. But really... They just think in the human, they just only think of the human Jesus, the good advice, the law, not this new life, this incarnational life. We believe in the incarnation. If we want to more than appear to be Christians, if we want to be Christians, we believe in the incarnation, in the Christ who entered the world in the flesh and engaged and related and suffered and bled and died and cried. I love how Victoria rhymed earlier, and I'm going to do it too. He died and he cried and he bled and he died. And yes, you know, when you go out the doors today, you're going to exit as people in the flesh. You are, you are in the flesh now. You'll still be flesh when you go outside, but your Christianity has to incarnate itself in your flesh. And you go out the door, and we leave a place that's more than good advice and moral teaching. If I've ever given you good advice and told you it was the gospel, I'm sorry. I hope I never have. I don't think I have. There's a difference. The gospel is something different entirely. It's about the cross. It's about the resurrection. It's about the call on our life. And it's a call to go into this world. So when we go out as incarnated word, we relate to this world. We live in it. We participate in it. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, it talks about we seek the peace and the prosperity of the city that we live in for now. We connect with it. We extend the hospitality that works towards the truth. So, I didn't think I'd get this excited. Praise God. 
I hope you're excited too. Where are we? I'm going to sum it up. We extend hospitality to good teachers who teach true doctrine. Kick me out of the church if I say something wrong. I can live with it. We believe something specific but incredibly important about Jesus, that he came in the flesh. That's so important. And that means we also live our lives in this world in the flesh. We die in the flesh and we will be raised in the flesh to be with Jesus. And all along, we understand the high cost of following him because that's what the gospel is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word for these hidden gems, for this fire inside your servant John that spoke about the importance of Jesus coming in the flesh. Father, help us to believe that Jesus came in the flesh into this world to save it, to seek and to save. Lord, help us go out in the flesh and be the incarnate word in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.